0: and I'm sitting down here with Mr. Matt Temple. How are you, Matt? I'm doing great. Great. Thanks for making the drive down here to Joliet. Absolutely. So, uh, Matt, I appreciate you coming out and taking some of your summer vacation time. I'm just reading your shirt that says summer vacation.
1: Exactly. (laughs)
0: uh come and sit down with us here, but um, yeah, I'd love to just get right into it, and we'll we'll start, you know, chronologically here. Can you kind of take us maybe a little bit briefly about your your musical upbringing and what has uh, led you to where you are today? Just a little snapshot of that.
1: Sure. Well, I grew up in Glen Allen, Illinois, which is this very picturesque, beautiful. Western suburb of Chicago and literally has a lake right next to the high school, which looks like an old castle, Glenbard West. Um, I started trumpet in third grade, which was a little early uh, as far as beginning band goes, but that's how they did it in my district. And then I started piano in seventh grade. And when I got into high school, I got involved in a rock band with my good friends. So I picked up the bass guitar. And a year later, we kicked out our lead guitarist, and I assumed that position. <laughs> but um, I had Don Cruz as my junior high band director at Hadley Junior High. And I I think my eighth grade year was literally his first year at Hadley. Hmm. Um, and he immediately turned the band around. I mean, he had us going to Superstate that, that year, and they were immediately um, – Earned the honor band, mm. so I mean it was just like whirlwind. Poof, overnight, Cruz just whipped that program into shape, and then I went to Glenbard West, uh, where I had Mark Hengish as my high school director. My mom always used to say that I got the the best of both worlds because Don was this really technically proficient director where he could just get every note lined up perfectly and exact. And Mr. Hingish was just this incredibly exuberant musical personality. And so she felt like I always had this great balance of technique and musicianship, which I didn't really understand until years later how much I benefited from that. Um, as I said, I was also in a high school rock band. And by my senior year, uh, it looked like all three of us were going to be going into music. And I was the only one that ended up going into music education. My other two friends went into music business. Um, and one of them almost made it. I mean, his band was on the dumb and dumber soundtrack during okay. <laughs> <laughs> the gas station scene where he almost, almost catches himself on fire. Um, <clears throat> but I, I was the, the loner that decided to go into music ed. Um, so then I matriculated to the University of Illinois. The The funny thing about that is um, I really knew nothing about colleges or universities or programs. My parents were very hands-off as far as that process. Um, so I just started applying to what I considered to be great schools. So I started applying to University of Illinois, Indiana, Northwestern. Um, and so during my senior year, winter break rolls around and I come home from school and I'm starting to fill out the applications and I open the Northwestern application and it says a letter of recommendation from a teacher. I'm like, well, I guess I'm not applying there (laughs) because it's winter break and I didn't ask my teacher. So I crossed that off my list. So I applied to Indiana and U of I. Um, Well, I, I took the audition at U of I and two weeks later I was supposed to take my audition at Indiana. And I got my acceptance letter to U of I like a week after the audition. So then again, naively, I was like, well, I got accepted to U of I, so I'm not going to take that audition at Indiana. So I really just kind of landed at U of I by accident. <laughs> and what- Is that commercial for the college? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Go there if you have no other plans. No. No, I, I was a smart kid and, you know, like in high school I was originally thinking, well, I'm either going to be an engineer or I'll go into music education, you know. Um, but the, when I started at U of I, I also had no idea how strong the music education program was. Okay. No idea whatsoever. I just sort of walked into it and I learned very quickly that they had this incredible heritage and history and that they were ranked incredibly high, like nationwide, you know, it, and so I was just incredibly fortunate and lucky to land where I did, you know, seemingly just by fate. Mm. Um, I had <clears throat> incredible music education professors there, uh, Daniel Kohut and Thomas Wisneski, who were I, I like to call bad cop, good cop. I mean, they were like complete polar opposites and just... Um, offered a really nice perspective for every kid there. The band team was incredible. Um, Gary Smith was there, James Keene, Cody Birdwell was finishing. I I think he had maybe finished his doctorate, but he was the assistant band director. He's now the director of bands at University of Kentucky. Um, And then Peter Griffin was finishing his doctorate, and uh, he's now at Elmhurst College. So it was just an incredibly rich environment. And uh, prepared me well for when I started, my, you know, out in the real world. Um, as far as positions, I started at Flora, which was a very small rural town in southern Illinois. And when I would tell people where I was teaching, they go, "Oh, you're teaching in Florida? No, I'm teaching in Flora, Illinois. You've never heard of it." <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I was typical first-year band director. I was married to my job. I was probably the most eligible bachelor in town because everyone my age had moved out after they graduated <laughs> high school. <laughs> so I, I very willingly just, you know, slaved over the program. And at that time, I I built a lot of um, like a sort of the total program. I was doing musical theater, music appreciation, choir, and band. So it was, uh, you know— jack of all trades master of none um and i made a lot of mistakes there and and you know there was no one really around that i could consult so a lot of it was i was sort of self-taught when i started out in the profession um so after a few years there i decided to uh pursue my graduate studies and my plan from the v- very beginning was to uh, go back full-time and and be a graduate assistant because that that seemed to really appeal to me when I was an undergraduate, seeing the the graduate assistants and what they did. Um, So I was looking at universities, and initially I was looking at a lot of Big Ten schools, but um, I called up the local director near Flora who was teaching at Eastern Illinois University, and that was Dr. Joseph Manfredo, and he had started teaching at Eastern Illinois the exact same year that I had started teaching at Flora. So he, was, he did a lot of reach out to the local directors, and I had seen him direct um, an honor band festival that had included my high school. And so I, I started consulting Dr. Manfredo about my graduate school search, and eventually he more or less talked me into coming to Eastern instead, <laughs> okay. um, which worked out really well because the experience I had at Eastern was way more personalized than what I probably would have gotten at any of the Big Ten schools. I had a tremendous amount of podium time. I wrote drill for multiple shows, you know, whereas like at your typical Big Ten, you might write drill for one show Mm -hmm. as a graduate assistant. I was writing drill for all the shows. Um, I got to rehearse the campus band like that was my band in the spring. So I was rehearsing, you know, multiple pieces. Whereas again, if you're at a Big Ten school, you might rehearse one piece the entire year. Um, And it was a two-year program. So I had that much more time to just really dig in and learn a lot from someone that I really esteemed and admired. Mm -hmm. Um, Dr. Manfredo taught me a lot about score study and what he called phrasal analysis, like just breaking down the piece, you know, phrase by phrase and really examining every element of the piece. Um, I remember in one of the graduate classes, he used the uh, Len, uh, Leonard Bernstein book, um, the Unanswered Question six talks at Harvard, which was really scholarly and sort of blew my mind as a as a young director. Um, some funny th- memories about Doctor Manfredo. He was always very fond of taking his glasses off every single time he would make a comment from the podium. <laughs> so he he got in this. And it was basically because his vision was so bad that he had to put the glasses on in order to see the score, but then for some reason he felt compelled to take them off every time that he would talk (laughs) to the ensemble, and anyone that's ever played under him can relate to that story.
0: So a good interviewer would then kind of segue more into the, you know, Dr. Manfredo questions with this, but that's not me. I got a couple of questions that came up here. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> you know, just for the fun part of it, I, I want to go back to the rock thing real quick. Sure. So what, what influences for that, just so we can kind of paint a picture, you know, what did we sound like? Was this the alternative grunge era?
1: It, well, it was alternative, but it was before grunge. It was just a few years before grunge. So this was like the late 80s. Okay. Um, alternative rock. So my favorite band of all time is the Smiths, which okay. was a British rock band and other things like the Cure, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, REM. Okay. So a lot of those bands were, and a lot of those bands are still around today, yeah, but a lot yeah. of them, they were basically starting out. And we were mainly a cover band, but we did record two full albums of our own material. I'm going to link them. Yeah, not to, none I'm of which I'm going to find them. Gonna, <laughs> no, I'll <laughs> find them. I don't think any of it's online. <laughs> not yet. Um, and I'm I'm coming up on my 30th high school reunion. That's bizarre to even say that, but uh, at the 20th reunion, we did get back together and, and we jammed. So, like I said, the other two went into the music business, and and I think they've continued to play a lot more than I have. I I still play mainly acoustic now okay. with my good friend actually from U of I days and we do just a lot of covers okay. but it's all acoustic so it's like Foo Fighters, Dave Matthews, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So, so. No, I uh was just interested in in that portion and and you know just thought it was kind of a neat thing to hear. You, often when we talk to music educators, it's you know sometimes here's this classic straight train, and arrow, straight yeah. and narrow, yeah. And now I'm picturing you with the uh, you know the late '80s dreads.
1: And, well, and you know. I had hair back then, so <laughs> <laughs> and I I did wear combat boots uh, ma- mainly just for performances. But um, there was an area of the high school, it was one of the only areas in the high school that actually had carpet. Yeah. So we were called the carpeted area people because okay. that's where we would hang out before school. And we were all decked out in pea coats and striped shirts and high tops. I mean, that was pretty much the rage <laughs> when I was in high school. So.
0: And I, you know, it's interesting because I, I graduated high school early 2000s, but we still had rock bands that were going, there's no rock bands. In high schools around here that I huh. see, yeah. I, I just, I don't, like and if there head- are, I don't hear about them yeah. at all. You just don't see a lot of kids getting together and jamming right. like that, which is something I'm a little, you know, nostalgic over.
1: There. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, and one of the things that I, believe it or not, that I most credit to those days is, are my aural skills. Yeah. Because there were no tab books back then. Like you couldn't go out and buy the music for any of these bands. And so we had to learn everything by ear. Mm -hmm. So we were literally listening to the records and the tapes and playing it over and over and over. And is that a minor chord? Is that a major chord? What's that added note? It's a seventh. You know, like as a high school student, these things kind of blew my mind. But then sure enough, when I got to U of I, I I was able to test out of almost all of my RL skills classes because I like... I know what that is. Yeah, I, yeah. I can write that down. You
0: know. That's funny you mention that because I do remember when I was learning guitar in high school, I went to like tabplanet.com. Exactly. You know, <laughs> and like, boom, here it is. You know, here's yeah. this Green Day song that's got three notes, but there's <laughs> that. You know, let's talk real quick if you don't mind too. There was something that you said that I thought was pretty important and you said you were, you were slaving over the job and you were married to the job at the beginning. And... I hear that from so many people, but I guess my follow-up question would be, do you think you'd be in the place you are today without doing that? No.
1: Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I've been teaching long enough that I feel like there are basically some phases you go through as okay. a director, you know, where you're young and curious and eager and willing to do just about anything in the beginning. And then, at some point, you know, if you settle down and you and you have a significant other, then things start to taper off, and then if you end up raising a family together, i mean it it all sort of goes you know with your life cycles, and you have to be really conscientious and thoughtful about how you balance all of that along the way okay, you because
0: know? that's that's just always my question with is I hear like you yeah, know I did this the first two, three,
1: five, ten years of the career. You know, oh, I think but, it's a rites of passage. Yeah. I mean, it's like <laughs> it is a little bit of an endurance test. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that's why 50% of new teachers drop out of the profession within the first five years. But that's across the board. Not, sure. That's not just music. So what do
0: you think it is then? Is it, as you're saying, maybe you get through different wa- walks of life or do some people get a more maybe efficient with uh, their teaching oh, or, you sure. know, or, yeah. or is it that you just kind of realize at some point, like, this isn't as important as I thought it was. This maybe specific choice or action here.
1: All, All of the above. Okay. Yeah. I think you get tremendously more efficient and then you start prioritizing. Okay. Yeah.
0: So Joe Manfredo, I'd like to talk about him a little bit. Yeah, now that you know we've we've cleanly segued to this portion here, because um, he's he's somebody that's come up before with other people, and he seems mm-hmm. very influential. What are you know some some characteristics? You talked about how you know there's phrasal analysis. You talked about some score study. You talked about um, the experience that you got, but what are like some characteristics of a Joe Manfredo that makes him somebody that? really was influential to you and other teachers
1: well you know i'm first i'm really um intrigued and fascinated by lineage of of band directors and uh manfredo was Bijan's last conducting intern okay um and while when i was at eastern manfredo had Bijan onto campus and did a four-day residency and as part of that residency I got to have dinner with him. I got to have a private conducting lesson. I got to play principal trumpet on Armenian dances under his baton. I mean, it was just an incredible time. But, I, you know, I think a lot of what I learned from Manfredo was things that he learned from Bijan, you know, and just that, you know, consistency of passing on the, the band tradition and the band lineage. Um, so with Manfredo, <clears throat> He's Italian which means he's feisty, <laughs> you know? And so he, he demands, he, he can have a demanding presence on the podium. He's very headstrong. He knows what he wants and how to get it. And he was very charismatic. I mean, he, he could, you know, he recruited me to come to grad school there. And I mm. never did, I think, oh, I'm going to go to Eastern Illinois for my master's degree, yep. you know? Um, and he, he would draw all sorts of students to that school. I mean, he was a real kid magnet. And, and so the kids were excited to play for him. He was demanding. You know, he could get a lot out of them. Um, <clears throat> and I think, you know, like I said, I think some of that is in homage to, uh, to Bijan, you know, just like a strong podium personality.
0: So as we go on into this a little bit more here... I've got a couple of things as I as I have, have met you before and I've done some research. There's a couple of things that, that come up. Um one of them is comprehensive musicianship. Um and the other one, and, and not to like pigeonhole into this, but is non competitiveness. Yeah. Can you talk about that um a little bit? Just basically what your philosophies on competition are in in schools, with students, with, with band programs?
1: Well, I when I started teaching I you know I I dutifully took my flora band to um IHSA organizational contest and we got our division ones and all that and then when I started my second position at Wabansy Valley High School in Aurora um I think the comp- the idea of competition was sort of in a state of flux and I remember Chip Staley who was teaching at Nequa Valley our our sister high school at the time was really steering away from competition. And so we were starting to design student experiences like the Solo Ensemble Festival and their own organizational festival where it was no longer a contest. And really the focus became more on just the music making. And even as a director, I felt sort of this tremendous sense of relief, like, oh, I'm not going to be ranked, I'm not going to be scored. You know, it's, it's one thing when your band does well and you feel proud of your students' accomplishments and the kids do, but when you don't do as well, at least in the eyes of, you know, some evaluator, sure, it, it can often take a little bit too much of a toll on the um, pride or the esteem of the, of the organization. And I, I can remember very distinctly when I was at Waubonsie Valley, Um, the year that our marching band started to do really well. And we went to a marching competition at Prospect High School. And it was sort of, it was a wet competition. It was raining right before we went out. And we came off the field and we just did not feel that great about the performance. And so we were huddling up as a marching band and talking about it and saying, well, you know, that wasn't our best show, but you know, we've got a couple more this season. And we, now we know what we need to go after, and so on and so forth. Well, the irony of the whole situation is we ended up getting first place that night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and then it felt a little odd, you know, like, yeah. well, that wasn't our best performance, but relative to other bands, it was. So then, you know, the the kids go, "Goo Goo Gaga!" Oh, we got first place! We got first place! But it felt a little disingenuous as a as a teacher mm-hmm. and as an educator because that wasn't a true indicator of. Of how you know we were doing as an organization that night. Um, anyway, fast forward several years later, when I got to Trier, the philosophy of that department for a long time was all non non competition. Okay. Just you know the the opposite of it, and and I think the biggest argument for the non competitive uh, philosophy is basically you know once once you establish a program and you're achieving at a very high level. I don't know that you need that impetus of competition to continue to motivate you or propel you, you know, like the program sort of gains its own inertia, you know, and kids really want to play well and do well, regardless of whether they're getting a pat on the back Mm. or not. Um, and, And, you know, I think fundamentally it comes down to music is art and art is subjective. So it's meant to be interpreted Mm -hmm. and open to interpretation. And I think sometimes, you know, like if you pit 10 amazing bands against one another, but they're all playing different music, well, who's to say which band is the best or better? Sure, Maybe all 10 are great, you know? And that's not to discredit, you know, the fact that, yes, some bands do play better than other bands. But I, I don't know that that comparison is worth its weight in gold as far as what music education is about okay you know what i mean i think that uh whether you participate in competitions or not the emphasis has to be on music and art you know expressing who you are as a group as an individual um learning you know different interpretations and different perspectives. And and yes, you, you can do that through competition. You just got to make sure that the emphasis is not on the ratings. Sure. You know. and,
0: and that was something that I've been thinking about more and more lately. And um, I've even been trying to think like, yes, maybe that should be the concept of it. Um, but do the logistics of that change depending on where you are, socioeconomic status, maybe it's a rural, urban school? You know, because I think about, I think they do. You know?
1: I, I mean, it's, it's easy for me as the director at Nutrier <laughs> to say we don't need competition because the community clearly values the arts and the kids, you know, have an amazing work ethic and they're brilliant. And I mean- 80, 80 to 90% of all the kids in the band program study privately. Okay. And, and I, I don't require it. I mean, it's, sure. it's optional, but that's the expectation of the community and the parents.
0: But just so, like, somebody listening to this doesn't go to their administration and say, we're pulling the plug no. on all competition.
1: Yeah, I think it's all there's, relative. There's a
0: lot more that goes into it. You know, For example, out here, like we do IHSA solo and ensemble contest because the school pays for IHSA solo and ensemble. Yeah, they don't pay for one that we might host here. Right. <laughs> so, right. you know that that's just been things I've been thinking about, you know, as well. Or if you're at, um,
1: well, actually, you know, it's go, funny yeah, you should mention that though, because at Wabanzi, um, in Indian Prairie School District with Niqua, and this was before Mattia came into existence, um, that was one of the ways that Chip actually sold the the solo ensemble is. Instead of using district monies to pay for this event, yeah, why don't we do our own in-house event? And then you know he would talk about these are the student benefits. This is this cost savings because sure. you know usually when you do it in-house, you're going to save money. You're not paying for buses or yeah. you know yeah. whatever else. So that's one one thing you might consider. Okay, so did
0: that still then? Do you know come from district funds still? To yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So so I definitely learned something already. With that. <laughs> Because <laughs> sometimes money really does, you know, dictate, oh, I know, you yeah. know, how things are going to happen. Because I've also thought, too, um, you know, and I said this on the Rodney Dorsey podcast, where like I, I grew up in this area, free reduced lunch kid. And when we would get those notches in our belt, like that's something that made me feel
1: valuable. Yeah. yeah.
0: Just because we, we felt. Not like we didn't have anything, but this this was a big deal to us at that point. Right. You know, so especially I think for me growing up, it was, you know, we would look at people in other towns, oh, they have everything, they have this, they have that, and which isn't true. Um you know, but me as I'm getting older, that's just it's just kind of something I'm focusing on is the competition. And, and for me it's like how to how to quit it yeah Yeah. (laughs) or you know shift thinking
1: I think there are so many festivals nowadays that have moved away from rankings and ratings that it's a lot easier to like you know we go to the Chicagoland Invitational Concert Band Festival and you're always
0: exhibition
1: right yeah and we're one of the only yeah but and I don't you know, I don't regret it at all. Like, there's no part of me that goes, "Gee, I wonder what those other directors are thinking about." I, sure. <laughs> it doesn't cross my <laughs> mind. I mean, and my kids have a fantastic experience. They get to hear other awesome high school bands, the featured college band, and then they work with you know a national clinician. So sure. the value is there. You know?
0: all right. Not that I have to answer to you, but I'm going to commit to you that when I go this year. I'm going to be an exhibition band as well. All right. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. (laughs) Take the plunge. And they're not going to talk about you, but then they'll talk about me. Uh,
1: (laughs) I I doubt it.
0: So let's go further into Nutrier because, you know, as you talked, it might be a bit different than other people's situation. Already you're talking about 80 to 90 percent. um private lessons that is not enforced by you You can't really enforce that today with many places at all but can you kind of tell me maybe i don't want to say a typical place a typical year at nutrier but you know maybe how you design the year some special things that you guys might do during that school year for your musicians
1: right well nutrier is incredibly unique Um, As an institution and then also as a fine arts department. So we have a nine-period day plus an early bird, so essentially a 10-period day. But that means that our periods are only 40 minutes long. Okay. So we have very short rehearsals. And because of the culture of the school, I cannot have sectionals over a lunch period or before school because that's the zero hour Hmm. or after school because a lot of our kids are in sports. So our entire program is really during the school day, just those 40 minutes. Um, and I don't have like weekly night rehearsals either. I mean, we just get it done during class time. okay. Um, I do have co-teacher, so we can split into sectionals. So tip you know in a five day week, two days of those would be large group sectionals. and then we also have a percussion instructor that only comes in one day a week. So one day a week will be split into three groups, percussion, woodwinds, brass. And then the other would just be, you know, brass and woodwinds with one of the groups picking up the percussion. So we're really only in full rehearsals then three days a week. Okay. That's how it basically works out. With my top group, I also do a chamber music unit, but again, it's it's during class time. And we do it twice a year. So um each chamber group will have a total of five rehearsals, and then depending on the time of year, they'll either play for the class in the fall or they'll play at the solo ensemble festival in March. Mm. Um, and, and the other thing is, we have to be really uh, conscientious about how we balance kids' involvement because band is curricular, orchestra is curricular, including the winds and percussion. Oh,
0: wow. Okay.
1: And jazz is curricular. So we have four wind ensembles, four jazz bands, four orchestras, two of which have full time winds and percussion. Okay. So many of our kids are taking two music classes. Some of them are taking three, and they are required to be in band as like their core music class. Okay. Uh, we call that co-enrollment. So knowing that you know a kid in my top band, I like a good fifty percent of those kids are also in orchestra and or jazz I can only schedule so many extra events outside of the school day because they're already playing all those concerts yeah so when you look at our off-campus performance schedule compared to a typical suburban school we're usually it on paper it looks like we're doing a lot less because I'll take the band out off campus for maybe one festival a year okay not two or three and we don't have a marching band either (laughs) So the great thing is we're doing wind ensemble all year long. So. Half of the audience went what, and the other <laughs> yeah. the other half went, please tell me
0: how. I know I just, <laughs> I just dropped a bomb there, but
1: um, well, that, it, honestly, that was part of the appeal of of teaching at Neutra in the first place was, you know, all of all of the groups are curricular and there's no marching band. Okay, so it's just a lot more reasonable in terms of its demands. Sure, sure.
0: So that's that's funny you say that cuz again it sounds like somebody's dream job and also somebody else's worst nightmare.
1: <laughs> right. You know yeah. with
0: that and uh <laughs> That's kind of funny. So when we think about, you know, maybe special events, because I know in the past the group has, has played at huge festivals and, and, you know, has done performance tours, you know, how, how do you get into that? How do you look at that for the year? Is that something that you definitely plan well in advance or are these maybe opportunities that just kind of come up?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I try to every two or three years do something of significance for the program whether it be the National Concert Band Festival or the Midwest Clinic or this coming year we were accepted to play at the state music conference. Mm. Um, And, you know, part of my thinking there was 2020 just sounds like a good milestone (laughs) to go play at the state (laughs) conference. Um, But then, you know, sprinkled in there too, we've done some international tours. So um, we've been to Australia. We have a sister city, sister high school there. And they're slated to come back to New in a couple of years. So that's a pretty significant exchange there. Um, A few years ago, we did an Italy tour. And just last year, we did Carnegie Hall. Okay. So I I think more than anything, it's sort of spacing it out and pacing it for our kids. So that in any one year, we're not doing multiple things
0: and i know when we had john thompson on here before he would talk about his concerts he said he almost never had a concert without a guest conductor or a soloist and i was looking at the website it looks like you guys are you know following that tradition a little bit still while while doing some other things as well
1: yeah well and one great tradition that john started which i continue to this day is the invitational concert Mm -hmm. similar to our jazz fest um Jazz Fest is, is, you know, its own entity. There's, it's the largest non-competitive jazz festival in the United States. Okay, um, and so basically, that's a second band festival. Um, so if you only have one jazz band at your school, you can bring it to the festival. But most schools have more than one, so sure. you bring your second or third band. Um, and there's no ratings, so that was created by um, our previous director of jazz Jim Warwick in his second or third year at Neutrier. And so uh, similarly John Thompson created the Invitational concert, hmm. which is a concert band concert, uh, his first or second year at Neutrier as well. And uh, I think we're coming up close to 40. I think we might be at maybe 38 this year. okay. Um, but the concept there is is very simple. Uh, we invite one or two guest schools to come out share a concert with us uh, they come out late afternoon then we have a dinner together where the kids get to interact and meet each other and um, converse and then we we play the concert together and then afterwards we do a little post-concert reception do another similar visit and and so there's there's no element of competition involved it's not like your typical festival where you're getting evaluated Sure, sure. you're just playing a concert yeah you know with another school um, and so, one of the things that we've done in terms of guests, artists, is, you know, sometimes we'll include a guest conductor. So this last year, we had um, Dennis Seisler out from Domin- uh, Old Dominion University in Virginia, and he uh, guest conducted the Nutria Band on a piece, and then guest conducted our guest, the Vernon Hills High School band, okay. on a piece. And so that's just another way that sort of brings the the two groups closer hey we both worked with the same guest conductor Uh, a few years ago we played at symphony center for the invitational the year that nutria was being renovated so we we wanted to do do something special for the kids because we were essentially (laughs) rehearsing in a garage that a home there (laughs) it was we had no home um so that year we featured um Stephen williamson who's the principal clarinetist with the cso who happens to live in our district <laughs> but um he he played um the uh von uh concertino concertino by von weber i thought you were gonna say the von halen uh yeah, concerto right? or something
0: <laughs> um
1: is it it's
0: not Van. it's just weber. no it's van halen yeah Oh Weber! Oh, we're so I'm I'm talking about uh, Van Halen still. Oh no, so. I, <laughs> I got gotcha.
1: you. We featured him on the Weber Concertino, and uh, it it was the fastest version I have ever heard. He's got he's got fingers of lightning, and I kid you not, he was double tonguing on the clarinet. I, yeah. I have no idea how he was tonguing that fast. Um, so those are just some of the cool things, sure. unique things that we try to build into the invitational.
0: So if we talk to a new Trier kid, you know, from their perspective, what do you think are some of their favorite memories of the band program, uh, at new Trier?
1: You know, I think like many kids, um, the trips, mm-hmm. you know, like we typically don't go to Disney, yeah. right? Cause we don't have a marching band and you know, the, the new Trier community, a lot of those families are taking Pretty elaborate trips on their own. Sure. So when we travel as a you know a music community, whether it be band with the orchestra or band with the jazz or so on and so forth, we're usually doing things like Carnegie Hall or the Sydney Opera House or you know a tour of Italy. So those are really significant memories that the sure. kids carry with them. The kids really enjoy the Invitational and okay. Jazz Fest. They. I think that's the other thing about the whole non-competitive philosophy is there's just no pretense of comparison okay none you know you're just you're in the moment enjoying music making and relating to other kids no matter where they go to school i mean there's no um you know standoffishness the kids are just very open and hey where do you go to school and i really enjoyed your performance and you know
0: so you get to play some great music and then make fifty new friends. Yeah, each each one of those at least. So yeah. very cool, comprehensive musicianship, and uh, this is a project you're you're passionate about. Your name always comes up with compre- uh, comprehensive musicianship, um, and I know that's kind of a, a movement started in the seventies. And I think yeah. the question I was asking you, you know, is is if you can maybe talk to us a little bit about that. Has comprehensive musicianship has it? Um, Taken over like you thought it would have? Is it something that is still maybe misunderstood in the schools?
1: Well, I think it. I think it's definitely taken root, but okay. it's growing. You know, uh, basically the Illinois version of it was created only eight years ago. Okay, and so we have a committee of teachers, and we meet quarterly. And um, most of our meetings are planning for our summer workshop, which occurs at Northern Illinois University. And uh, we just had it a couple weeks ago this summer in June. And um, Comprehensive Musicianship, it basically started in Wisconsin in the late 70s. And what's really unique about it is that it draws on uh, teachers from all areas. So it's not just a band thing. It's not just an orchestra thing. There are band, choir, orchestra, and general music teachers at all grade levels, K through 12, that are all talking about how to best teach music. Um, So CMP is is many things sort of simultaneously. So CMP is a model for planning music instruction. So it it sort of becomes like a long-term lesson plan, how to teach a piece, okay? CMP is also then becomes a way of thinking about music and teaching music. There's also the CMP community, all these teachers that are, you know, into this form of teaching. Um, And then there's the workshop. The summer workshop is the most comprehensive, yes, pun intended, I guess, but it's the easiest way to learn the full model and learn how to integrate it in your own classroom. So essentially, CMP is just that. It's comprehensive. It's teaching more than just notes and rhythms. Mm -hmm. It's teaching transferable concepts and music history and music theory and things that go beyond just learning how to play one single piece of music, or even four or five pieces of music for a single concert. Okay.
0: So what is assumed with comprehensive musicianship um, if you're if you're approaching a piece that way, Do we assume the kids have notes and rhythms down, or is that a part of that? Lesson it's, planning, probably in the initial stages of it. of it. Yeah. Okay. So, like, if I could put you on the spot and I throw a piece at you right now. So, like, if we're, um, uh, we'll put, we'll put Carmina Baran out there, for sure. example. Okay. Just because that's kind of, we got, we got voices, we got wind instruments, we got string instruments there yeah. for that. Um, so if I'm taking a comprehensive musician approach, musicianship approach to that, what am I coming out with as opposed to, um, you know the director just kind of beating the notes and rhythms into me. You know, and if you're not hardcore into the history of Carmina Burana, neither am I. So you know, yeah, I, I don't.
1: <laughs> well, I, I've and I've never performed the piece except with a good old marching band, okay. <laughs> Wabansie Valley. But um, or, or
0: you could even insert your own piece that you have a an example well, no, of but
1: I, I I'm I know enough about it. Sure. I mean, Carl Orff. Um, it, it's Bacchanalian in yeah. nature, you know, it, um, and so. Not that that might be the most ideal.
0: I was going to say, I picked the least appropriate piece. Right?
1: <laughs> but no, I mean, that's it. You know, learning more about the history of the piece and, you know, what is the opera about? And um, so in the CMP model, you're, you're, you identify three outcomes that you want to work on extensively with a given piece. And one of them is a skill outcome, which would be sort of the notes and rhythms, like how are you going to perform an aspect of that piece? Well, okay. Um, and then the second outcome is a knowledge outcome. So that's typically music theory, music history. And with Carmina Burana, that, you know, that would be a a pretty easy vehicle to talk about opera tradition and the history of, you know, Carmina Burana and so Mm -hmm. on and so forth. And the fact that it's a transcription and, you know cuz it's it's easy enough to put any piece of music in front of students and teach them just how to play that piece without sure. talking about how it came into existence its roots its relevancy its traditions you know yeah so that's what the knowledge outcome addresses and then the last outcome is sort of the intangible if you will of music which is the affective outcome and usually in the music tradition we would call that the aesthetic Right, the, To learn how to appreciate the beauty of the art. But in the CMP language, affective is broader than just an aesthetic or you know appreciation of beauty. It's what are the values, um, uh, opinions, um, beliefs that we as humans hold dear and true and we you know like through this piece, what's something that we could learn about us as humans, okay? You know? Maybe through Carmina Burana, you talk about the imperfection of humans, you know, that hmm. we have sins and vices, yeah, you know, yeah. and, um,
0: I'm going to have to put it like a PG 13 on this episode. Now. <laughs> well,
1: there've been no swear words yet, no, nothing but, yet. uh, <laughs> but, um, you're like, just wait till the end. <laughs> so, so the, through that, that lens of a skill outcome, knowledge outcome, affective outcome, you then scaffold it over, you know, your rehearsal cycle. Whether it's five weeks, eight weeks, you know, or super short, three weeks, whatever. And you just you go deeper. Okay. I mean, that's that's the essence. You're just going way deeper into the music than you would from just the physical requirement of this is how you play.
0: It's it's funny you say that because I'm thinking with my own shortcomings with it. We were doing one year, The Hounds of Spring. Love the piece, and like I thought the kids knew everything that this piece embodied because I read them the program notes. And the poem. And the poem. Right. And we we talked about it the first week, and then we had a guest clinician come in, and I don't know, five or six weeks later, said, now, has Mr. Stinson told you about this piece? And I remember looking at the little kids and said, no. (laughs) And, you know, know, I try to have a good report with the kids. I'm like, you traitors. Yes, we did. We talked about this, you know. And then they went, oh, okay, yeah. Now I remember it. So, of course, my initial thought when you're talking about comprehensive musicianship and getting into these things is that, well, these are things we already do. But then here I have evidence of kids saying, no, we don't remember this without this specific jogging of the memory now and even then what we could tell you is just was in the program notes in the poem right you know so that right there is something that i'm like yeah you're right we do need to get deeper in these things we do need to you know help these students kind of form some of these connections so if somebody's wanting to get into comprehensive musicianship i know you mentioned the workshop but are there things that they can also find online if they're trying to just, yeah. you know, uh, dip their toe into this a little bit at first?
1: Yeah, we have a website, of course, ilcmp.org. Okay. Um, where you'll find sample teaching plans, um, more about the model, just a, just a description and overview. There are five points to the model. It's it's basically in the shape of a star. Okay. And so the five areas, let's see if I can rattle these off. <laughs> Music selection. Analysis, which is basically score study, sure. Outcomes, which I told you about. Um, strategies, which is what we're all good at as teachers—how you sure. teach the piece, you know, your teaching techniques—and then the last uh, point is assessment. Okay. And, and what's pretty remarkable about the model is, I mean, it was created in 1977. Sure. And those five points of the model are still completely relevant today. You've got music selection I mean who doesn't talk about music selection like that's a hot topic any anywhere anytime right music selection analysis a score study teaching outcomes I mean that's still a, you know a very prevalent word uh, assessment is always big and your teaching strategies mm-hmm. I mean it, it's totally timeless I think the models very okay. timeless and our motto is teaching with intention performing with understanding and and so it's it's Doing what you were talking about with that program, no, but then, you know, teaching it over and scaffolding it and learning it again and again and again, so that it becomes part of the student consciousness. Sure, you know.
0: So, and it sounds like something too that if you are a new teacher or a veteran teacher, that you probably plug most of those things into your evaluation when you're trying to.
1: Oh man, King prove. Yeah. <laughs> what no, you do? It, it's it's pretty uncanny how well the CMP teaching plan um will appease any Danielson evaluation. Okay. I mean it's it's a perfect fit. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Which,
0: you know, hopefully then I mean you're doing right by the kids, you're doing right by the music, and then you're also helping yourself. Yeah.
1: I mean one out. of the one of the chief complaints of people that don't fully understand the C M P model is they say, Well, that's great, but when when are you going to learn how to play the piece? Yeah, You know, like, how are you going to do all this extra stuff? How can you how do you have time to go deeper? And a lot of it I found having done this for several years now, it's just the language. It's the way that you teach the piece and how you talk to the students, Yeah, you know, giving them a frame of reference as you go.
0: Absolutely. So music selection is one of those components. And that will lead us to, you know, one of my next questions that we could, you know, maybe help out some people beginning the field, or or even those who have been teaching for a while, but recommendation of some band works, maybe specifically lesser-known band works. We all kind of know the Warhorses, we know the tried-and-true pieces. Are there any pieces that you can think of that maybe people should, you know, pay attention to, maybe at least sight-read with their band, if not perform?
1: Well, I... I'm a real strong, um, advocator for Michael Markowski's music. Okay. Um, I used to be involved in, uh, a, com- uh, commissioning consortium that Jim call at St. Charles North. I think he's, he's probably still doing it to this day. Um, but we had commissioned Michael Markowski back in 2011 and he, um, produced the piece, uh, dreamland. And, it was one of the first commissioned pieces that really spoke to me. I was like, wow, this is a winner. This is great music. <laughs> and when I played it with the kids, they really connected with it. And so then the following year, when we played at the Midwest Clinic, I programmed that because I, I really wanted to, to put it out there. Um, since that time, I've, I've kept a close eye on his catalog and one piece that I I'm sure is going to really stand the test of time is the Cave You Fear. Okay, um, it's just an amazing work, and it's it's got a lot of depth. It's it's really just a grade three piece, but the year that I um, performed that piece, we were playing at the NBA Directors Workshop um, at McCracken Middle School with Chip, uh, Chip DiStefano. Stefano, and um, so I was playing it with my top group. But it was a grade three piece, mm-hmm. and the kids loved it. Yeah, you know, and I often think that's an indicator of like a really well crafted composition. Is e- even your most sophisticated musicians are like, this is great music. Yeah, yeah. you know, um, and it has some unusual instrumentation. It has a uses super ball mallet on the timpani in okay. the <laughs> middle, and uh, you there's an overtone that he includes the fingering for on the saxophone Mm. it's basically playing a low b flat without the c key okay and it makes this just outrageously loud unearthly overtone it's it's just like this moaning that it's it's indescribable okay um i was
0: gonna say so no different than the normal
1: saxophone (laughs) i'm sorry i'm sorry two trumpet players (laughs) (laughs) here Uh, but then another piece that I just recently performed this spring by Michael Markowski was City Trees, okay. which is more of like a grade five, uh, just a beautiful, lyrical cantabile piece. Yeah. Um, some easier pieces, too. Like I, I'm always looking for stuff that my freshman band and my sophomore band can play, um, and uh, there are a few by Brian Balmages that I really enjoy. Sun Cycles uses a synthetic scale. Okay. Uh, what you would call the double harmonic major scale. Okay. <laughs> it's, it basically, if you take the top four notes of two harmonic minor scales. All right. And then put them up, butt them up against each other. So, okay. like if you took the top four notes of the C harmonic scale and then the top four notes of the G harmonic scale. Okay. And it, it's a really cool sound. Hmm. Um, so that's u- that's used in sun cycles, and then ironically, that same scale is used in a different piece, which I also like to alternate with sun cycles, called Snake Charmer by Randall Standridge. Okay. Um, another piece that I, I think the the name of it's a little unfortunate, but I love the music. It's called Rippling Watercolors by Brian Balmiches and my wife, who is a musician but not a band director, um told me after I performed that with my freshman band uh, like maybe a year and a half ago, she yeah. said, that's one of the most beautiful moving pieces I've ever heard any of your bands play. Wow! I was like, well, that's pretty high praise. <laughs> so,
0: And I'm sorry, the, uh, I guess I could just go back and listen to this, but <laughs> Rippling Watercolors, you said?
1: Rippling Watercolors. Okay. Yeah. Um, we're preparing t- to play at IMEC next yeah. January, so I'm really like, Perusing a lot of music right now because i i want to play something new that's worthwhile that i want to expose directors to so i'm also looking at some compositions by jody blackshaw Uh, peace dancer is kind of a cool one uh moments by alex shapiro um she uses some pre-recorded music similar to what Stephen bryant um is it, was it ec- ecstatic waters? Is that I the think one I
0: so. Think? And and Alex Shapiro, she did. Was it paper cut? Yep. Was that her other one? Okay. Yep. Or one of her other ones, I should say. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Matt, what are as we kind of end this here? Um, maybe some challenges that you'd like to go over that you faced as a new teacher or current challenges um, that you face now that you could you could give to some of our audience as a warning maybe that says listen if you're going to do this do this instead <laughs> or this is what could happen
1: well i mean i think we touched on this a little bit when yeah. we were talking about you know new teacher burnout and yeah i think it's really important to pace yourself i think you need to go slow to go far mhm Um, A really powerful phrase that I just read this past year in Richard Floyd's book, The Artistry of Teaching and Making Music, Um, there's a a line in there, only do what only you alone can do. Mm. Meaning, we oftentimes are willing to do lots of mindless sort of peripheral things for our job that anybody could do. Meaning like, your student staff or, you know, a support staff or somebody other than you, <laughs> you yeah, know, because yeah. there are a million things that you could be doing at any given moment to get things, you know, done for your program. But there are there are actually very few things that you are the only person qualified to do. So learning to focus on those things and learning to to let go a little bit, because I I'm a perfectionist and and many of us are, are sort of type A as yeah. band directors, you know, we're very driven, we're very particular, but you got to be willing to let go and and let a few mistakes be made by other people because more will get done.
0: <laughs> so you're saying you shouldn't get mad at the font that like your band parent organization <laughs> uses, you yeah. know, or, or as long as it's not comic sans or something of yeah, course, right, you know.
1: Right. <laughs> I You know, one of the things that I learned at Wabanzi Valley from uh, one of my assistant principals there, Dr. Rudy Keller, he always used to say, use the case method, method. copy and steal everything, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I thought, well, that's, that's kind of funny, but, yeah. but there's a lot of truth to that. You know, I, I don't know that any of the directors are really innovative, um, in and of themselves, yeah. I think the innovation is when we learn from each other, and we pick and choose the things that speak to us as teachers, because it's it's not a one size fits all, right? Yeah. I mean, you on the podium, me on the podium, like there are many different ways to skin a cat, you know, and and get similar results or get very different results. But I think it's the way in which we combine all those influences and all those little. Uh, you know, our tool bag of tricks. It's the way that we combine them that makes us innovative as Absolutely. teachers.
0: And you know, it's funny you say that because there's certain things that I'll say to my band, and then we'll have a clinician come out. Look, you stole that for him. Yeah, I did. <laughs> you know. And yeah. then there's you know some of the small things too. Like I'll never forget here. The first time I had a band info night and I put out our band handbook and the front, Joliet Central High School band. Okay. And then you open up the first paragraph, the Hersey Instrumental Organization <laughs> prides at someone. Oops, forgot Whoops. the find and replace on that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Are there any, uh, as we kind of close this out, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on music education today? Is there anything that we as music teachers need to be, you know, helping to push or helping to bring more um, recognition to?
1: I just think ceaselessly advocating for our programs and the value of music. Okay. Um, you know, I'm pretty disillusioned by the whole STEM movement, and I think Steam was an afterthought. Oops, we forgot yeah. art, so let's just throw an A in. I, I really think it all it is very science, technology, mathematics driven, and I just worry about um, sort of the inhumanness. Of it all, you know. I think music is so vital to developing our kids and just their sense of self worth and who they are, and their self sense of self discipline and and yes, their aesthetic, their you know ability to appreciate beauty in the world around them. Um, even at Nutrier, I have found that I have to advocate much more now than I had to when I started, even just twelve years ago. Um, just society in general is, is so obsessed with, um, you know, academics and achievement and especially at Nutria, getting in, in, into the best college possible, yeah. you know? Uh, but the irony is, you know, the kids that go all the way through our music program, those are the kids that are getting into like Harvard, Yale, and Stanford, like all these really high profile colleges. Um, that some of our new true parents want their students to go to. Sure. You know, those are the kids that are, are really successful in music and then okay. go on to, you know, equally magnificent institutions. So,
0: well, thank you for coming out here, Matt. I appreciate this. And um, is there anything, uh, any big goals you have coming up, either with yourself or the band? Any big goals for the summer besides?
1: Just relax.
0: Get out of the uh, yeah. get out of the house a couple I've, of times.
1: Well, I'm one of those people. I I know some people can work right through the summer, but I I need I always need a significant pause. Yeah. You know, like a significant break, and and I found that that's what really makes me um, very successful. Then during the school year is because I have I built up all that endurance yeah. and stamina <laughs> again to get it through another school year. So. I hope you enjoy your summer break as well.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks for coming out, Matt.
1: Yeah, absolutely.